0: Chapter 7 of Time Telling Through the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Time Telling Through the Ages by Harry Chase Breerly. Chapter 7 The Modern Clock and Its Creators. We learned that toward the close of the 13th century, A clock was set up in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, 1286, one in Westminster by 1288, and one in Canterbury Cathedral by 1292. The Westminster clock and the chime of bells were put up from funds raised by a fine imposed on a Chief Justice who had offended the government. The clock bore an inscription, the words of Virgil, justitium moniti learn justice from my advice and the bells were gambled away by henry the eighth in the same century dante whose wonderful poem the Commedia, parenthetically the inferno purgatory and paradise is sometimes called the swan song of the middle ages since it marks the passing of the medieval times spoke of wheels that wound their circle in an horloge. Chaucer speaks of a cock crowing as regularly as a clock in an abbey horloge, and this shows curiously the early meaning of the word, for by the word clock Chaucer evidently meant the bell, which struck the hour, and very obviously he used the word horloge to indicate the clock itself. Many of these clocks had neither dials nor hands they told time only by striking the hour sometimes in the great tower clocks there were placed automatic figures representing men in armour or even mere grotesque figures which at the right moment beat upon the bell these figures were called jacks of the clock or jackamarts and curious specimens of them are still in existence THE EARLY abbey CLOCKS DID NOT EVEN STRIKE THE HOUR, BUT RANG AN ALARM TO AWAKEN THE MONKS FOR PRAYERS. HERE AGAIN THE ALARM PRINCIPLE PRECEDES THE VISIBLE MEASUREMENT OF TIME. EVEN NOW, AS ALREADY NOTED, WE SPEAK OF A CLOCK BY THE OLD WORD FOR BELL. IN THE COURSE OF THE FOLLOWING CENTURY, THE FOURTEENTH, CLOCKS BEGAN TO APPEAR WHICH WERE REALLY WORTHY OF THE NAME and of these we have authentic details. They were to be found in many lands. One of them was built in 1344 by Giacomo Dande at Padua, Italy. Another was constructed in England in 1340 by Peter Lightfoot, a monk of Glastonbury. And in 1364, Henry de Wyck, de Week or de Vick of Württemberg, was sent for by charles v king of france to come to paris and build a clock for the tower of the royal palace which is now the palais de justice it was finished and set up in february 1379 and there it still remains after a lapse of five and a half centuries although its present architectural surroundings were not finished until a much later date this venerable timepiece Termed by some chroniclers the parent of modern timekeepers, was still performing its duty as late as eighteen fifty, and so it is a matter of interesting record that its mechanism, which served to measure the passage of time in the days when the earth was generally believed to be flat and when the eastern division of the Roman Empire was still ruled from Byzantium now Constantinople has served the same purpose within the possible memory of men now living its bell has one grim association it gave the signal for that frightful piece of medician treachery the massacre of saint bartholomew planned by catherine de medici the mother of the king charles the ninth when the armed retainers of the crown of france flung themselves upon the unsuspecting Huguenots. AND CAUSED THE STREETS TO RUN RED WITH THE BLOOD OF MEN, WOMEN, AND CHILDREN, A GHASTLY BUTCHERY OF THOUSANDS OF PEOPLE. AS WE HAVE SEEN, De Vic's CLOCK WAS NEITHER THE EARLIEST MADE, NOR AMONG THE EARLIEST, NOR PROBABLY DID IT EMBODY ANY AT THAT TIME NEW MECHANICAL INVENTION. IT DOES, HOWEVER, FAIRLY AND CLEARLY TYPIFY THE OLDEST STYLE OF CLOCK of which we today have an accurate knowledge compare its description then with the clock upon your shelf we think of the tall cased grandfather's clocks as antique but this tower clock of de vicks outdoes them in antiquity by some four hundred years and its most interesting feature is its curious likeness in mechanical principle to the clocks of modern times Like most early clocks, it has only one hand, the hour hand. Its ponderous movement is of iron, laboriously hand-wrought. The teeth of its wheels and pinions were cut out one by one. It was driven by a weight of five hundred pounds, the cord of which was wound round a drum or barrel. This barrel carried at one end a pinion, meshing with the hour wheel which drove the hands. The flange at the other end of the barrel formed the great wheel, or first wheel, of the train. This meshed with a pinion on the shaft of the second wheel, and this in turn with a lantern pinion upon the shaft of the escape wheel. All of this is, of course, essentially the modern train of gears, only with fewer wheels. The escapement, is the most important part of the whole mechanism because it is the part which makes the clock keep time it is an interrupter checking the movement almost as soon as under the urge of the mainspring it starts forward the frequency and duration of these interruptions determines the rate of running without this the movement would run down swiftly with it the operation stretches over thirty hours involving four hundred and thirty-two thousand interruptions de vic's escapement is shown in the illustration the escape wheel was bent into the shape of a shallow pan so that its toothed edge was at a right angle to the flat part of the wheel near it was placed a verge or rotating shaft so called from a latin word meaning turning around on this verge were fastened two flat projections called pallets diverging from each other at about an angle of one hundred degrees the width between the pallets from centre to centre of each was equal to the diameter of the wheel so that one would mesh with the teeth at the top of the escape wheel and the other with the teeth at the bottom now, if the upper pallet were between the teeth at the top of the wheel, the pressure of the wheel trying to turn would push it away until the teeth were set free, but in so doing it would cause the verge to turn and bring the lower palate between the teeth at the bottom of the wheel, and since the bottom of the wheel was of course travelling in the opposite direction from the top, the action would be reversed, and the lower palate would be pushed away bringing the upper one back between the teeth of the wheel again and so on tick-tock the wheel moving a little way each time and the pallets alternately catching and holding it from going too far the device was kept running slowly by means of a cross-bar called a foliot fastened across the top of the verge in the shape of a t and having weights on its two ends when this weighted bar was set turning in one direction it would of course resist being suddenly stopped and start turning the other way as it was constantly made to do and this furnished the regulating action which retarded the motion of the works and kept them from running down this involves the principle of the modern balance wheel in both watches and clocks which is that of inertia the rim of the balance wheel represents the weights on the bar that resist the pull of the pallets. A vital improvement, however, is the interception of the hairspring, which gives elasticity to the pull, and thus supplies the elements of precision and refinement. The inertia of the balance wheel is gauged by the weight of the rim, and its distance from the center and the last refinement or regulation of the mechanism is produced by moving the tiny screws on the periphery of this wheel outward or inward we shall see later how this old escapement was in principle much like the improved forms in use to-day it was as quaint and clumsy an affair as the first automobile or the first steam-engine but like them it was a great invention destined to achieve great results, for it was the means of making a machine keep time. And every clock in watch and watch in use today depends for its usefulness upon a similar device. The tick is the first thing we think of in connection with a clock, and it is the most essential thing also, because it is the escapement which does the ticking. This old clock of de Vick's also struck the hour upon a bell, and in very much the same way as modern clocks are made to do. But the mechanical means by which it did so are too complicated to be easily described here, and indeed it is unnecessary to do so since the bell is far less important. A clock need not strike, but it must keep time. On the fearsome eve of St. Bartholomew, therefore, and again within the past generation. The clanging of this old clock's bell was brought about by the whirling years and ponderous weights of an early craftsman who wrought his work into the ages. As already stated, De Vick's mechanism embodied mechanical principles which, although greatly developed and improved, are employed even at the present day. All the essentials of a clock are there. The motive power, the descent of a massive weight, is now replaced by a slender spring. The train of gears by which this motion is reduced and communicated are cut today with the extreme accuracy of modern machine work. The hand moving around the dial is now accompanied by a longer, swifter hand to tell the minutes. The escapement, which by checking the motive power, while yet allowing it to move on step by step, retards and regulates even the numbered striking of the unchanging hours de vic's old clock may have been a crude machine it certainly was a poor timekeeper but it was the sturdy ancestor of all those myriad tribes of clocks and watches which warn us solemnly from our towers chime to us from our mantles or Nestling snugly in our pockets or clinging to our wrists, help us to maintain our efficiency in the complexities of modern life. The mechanism employed by de Vic was retained without any improvement of importance in all the timepieces of the next three hundred years. The foliotic escapement, especially, remained in use much longer indeed any modern watchmaker would recognize that it was practically a horizontal balance wheel long before it was improved upon watches had been invented and clocks had everywhere become common but we shall reserve the watch for the next chapter for the moment our concern is with clocks alone the disadvantage of the medieval clock was its inaccuracy this was due first to crude workmanship and unnecessary friction but that trouble was presently overcome for the medieval mechanic could be as fine and accurate as workman as any modern he had the artist's personal pride and pleasure in his skill and also a great unhurried patience somewhat hard for us to picture in this breathless age at best however His work fell far short of the accuracy possible with modern machinery. Other important difficulties were found in the expansion and contraction of parts due to temperature variations, and the fact that the foliate balance was at its best only when running slowly. Altogether, then, these early clocks were easily surpassed in accuracy of timekeeping by a sundial or a good clip the question arises therefore why this newcomer in the field of timekeeping should have begun to displace the earlier devices the clock was not yet a better timepiece than the sundial why did it grow more common well for one thing people like novelties for another people loved their churches and lived by the chimes of distant bells and the clock was by far the most practical striking device whatever might be its faults in keeping time. But what was most important of all, it was a machine, susceptible of infinite improvement, and offering a field for endless ingenuity. It appealed to that inborn mechanical instinct by means of which mankind has wrought his mastery over the world. We have seen how de Vick's clock contained, as it were, the germ of all our clocks." and moreover the medieval regarded machinery with profoundest awe it is the unknown which awakes imagination we wonder at the cathedrals of his day but the medieval knew about cathedrals he built them considering their comparatively cruder tools lack of modern hoisting machinery and so forth THEIR ARCHITECTURAL AND BUILDING ABILITIES EXCEEDED EVEN THOSE OF TODAY. ON THE OTHER HAND, A LOCOMOTIVE OR A MODERN WATCH, SUCH AS WE GLANCE AT WITHOUT SPECIAL NOTICE, WOULD HAVE APPEARED TO HIM THE PRODUCT OF SHEER SORCERY, TOO WONDERFUL TO BE THE WORK OF HUMAN HANDS. THE MIDDLE AGES COULD NOT MUCH IMPROVE THEIR CLOCK WITHOUT SOME RADICAL INVENTION and such a mechanical type of invention was yet the province of but few minds the typical craftsman could merely make the clock more convenient more decorative and more wonderful to this work he and his fellows addressed themselves with all of their patient skill and their endless ingenuity for ornamentation they made clocks for their churches and public buildings and elaborated them with intricate mechanical devices. The old jacks that struck the bells were only a beginning. They made clocks for their kings and wealthy nobles, adorning them with all the richness that an artist could design and a skillful jeweler could execute. They made clocks even for ordinary domestic use, so quaint in design and so clever in workmanship that we exhibit them today in our museums. One difficulty in determining the date of the first invention is that long before the days of de Vic and Lightfoot machines were made to show the day of the week and month, and to imitate the movements of the stars, and the first horological records may refer to clockworks of this kind. The famous clock of Strasbourg Cathedral shows the extreme to which the medieval craftsmen carried this kind of ingenuity. It was originally put up in 1352 and has been twice rebuilt, each time with greater elaboration. It is three stories high and stands against the wall somewhat in the shape of a great altar with three towers. Among its movements are a celestial globe, showing the positions of the sun, moon, and stars. A perpetual calendar, a device for predicting eclipses and a procession of figures representing the pagan gods from whom the days of the week are named there are devices for showing the age and phases of the moon and other astronomical events the hours are struck by a succession of automatic figures and at the stroke of noon a cock perched upon one of the towers flaps his wings ruffles his neck and crows three times this clock still remains having last been rebuilt in the four years 1838 to 1842 but its chief interest is that of a mechanical curiosity it keeps no better time than a common alarm clock nor ever did and in beauty as well as usefulness it has been surpassed many times by later and simpler structures FOR THE FIRST REALLY IMPORTANT IMPROVEMENT IN CLOCK-MAKING, WE MUST PASS TO THE LATTER END OF THE SIXTEENTH CENTURY. THE ITALIAN RENAISSANCE, WITH ITS GREAT IMPULSE TO ART AND SCIENCE, HAS COME AND GONE, AND THE MARCH OF EVENTS HAS BROUGHT US WELL INTO THE MODERN WORLD. AMERICA HAD BEEN DISCOVERED A CENTURY, AND IS BEGINNING TO BE COLONIZED. Spain is trying to found a world empire upon blood and gold and the tortures of the Inquisition. England is at the height of the great Elizabethan period. It is the time of Drake and Shakespeare and Sir Walter Raleigh. At this period of intellectual awakening, a remarkable young man steps upon the scene. In 1564 the year in which the wonderful englishman shakespeare first saw the light of day the scarcely less wonderful italian galileo was born in Pisa. he was gifted with keen eyes and a swift logical mind which left its impress upon so many subjects of human thought and speculation that we are tempted to stop as with archimedes and trace his history but one single incident must suffice in 1581 this youth of seventeen stood in the cathedral of pisa close at hand a lamp suspended by a long chain swung lazily in the air currents there was nothing unusual in such a sight millions of other eyes had seen other suspended objects going through exactly this motion and had not given the sight a second thought AT THIS MOMENT, HOWEVER, A GREAT DISCOVERY, A FAR-REACHING APPLICATION, ONE WHICH WAS TO REVOLUTIONIZE clock CONSTRUCTION, HUNG WAITING IN THE AIR. YOUNG GALILEO TOOK NOTICE. THE LAMP SWUNG TO AND FRO, TO AND FRO. SOMETIMES IT MOVED BUT SLIGHTLY again as a stronger breeze blew through the great draughty structure it swung in a considerable arc but always and this was the point which impressed itself upon the italian lad the swing was accomplished in exactly the same time when it moved a short distance it moved slowly the farther it moved the faster became the motion in its arc it moved more swiftly accomplishing the long swing in the same time as it did the short one in order to make sure of this fact galileo is said to have timed the swinging lamp by counting the beating of his pulse thus was discovered the principle of the pendulum and its isochronism by isochronism we mean in equal arcs in equal time in other words any swinging body such as a pendulum is said to be isochronous when it describes long or short arcs in equal lengths of time this also applies to a balance wheel and hairspring and herein lies a remarkable fact this epoch-making discovery was after all but a rediscovery the isochronism of a swinging body was known in babylon thousands of years before although the Babylonians, of course, could not explain it. Lacking in application, it had passed from the minds of men, and it remained for Galileo to observe the long-forgotten fact, and to work out its mechanical application. He did not himself apply this principle to clockmaking, although some fifty years later, toward the end of his life, he did suggest such an application the first pendulum clocks were probably made about sixteen sixty five by christian huygens the celebrated dutch astronomer and mathematician who discovered the rings of saturn and by the english inventor dr robert hooke the invention is claimed for several other men in england and abroad at about the same time but hardly upon sufficient authority from that time on the important improvements of clockwork were chiefly made in two directions those of the mechanical perfection of the escapement and the compensation for changes of temperature there is a little world of invention and discovery behind the face of the clock which beats so steadily on your mantle look within if you will and see the compact mechanism with its toothed gears its coiled spring or its swinging pendulum in which the motion of the cathedral lamp is harnessed for your service nothing in that grouping has merely happened so you may or may not understand all the action of its parts or the technical names of them but each feature in the structure has been the result of study and experiment as when huygens hung the pendulum from a separate point and connected it with a forked crank astride the pendulum shaft. You can see that forked crank to this day, if you care to look. It was the product of good Dutch brains. Next we come to one of the greatest single improvements in clockwork, and the chief difference between the mechanism made by De Vic and the better ones of our own time when the pallets in a clock are forced by an increased swing of the pendulum or by the form of the pallet faces against the teeth of the escape wheel in the direction opposite to that in which the wheel is moving the wheel must be pushed backward a little way each time and the whole clock action is made to back up a little you can see that this would tend to interfere with good and regular timekeeping. George Graham in London in 1690 corrected this error by inventing the deadbeat escapement, which rather contradicted its name by working very well and faithfully. There are many forms of this escapement, and there is no need to explain it in detail, but the main idea is this. At the end of each vibration or swing of the pendulum, the escape teeth instead of being made to recoil by the downward motion of the pallets, simply remains stationary or at rest until the commencement of the return swing of the pendulum. This was brought about by applying certain curves to the acting faces of the pallets. But the acting faces of both tooth and pallet are beveled, so that the tooth in slipping by gives the pallet a kick or impulse outward and keeps it in motion nowadays even a common alarm clock has an escapement working in this way then came another remarkably interesting contribution have you ever wondered why the pendulums of fine clocks were weighted with a gridiron of alternate rods of brass and steel for purpose of ornament not at all it constitutes a scientific solution of an embarrassing problem, due to the inevitable variations in temperature. Metals expand with heat and contract with cold. Notched iron bars can be made to crawl along a flat surface by alternately heating and cooling them. Bridge builders sometimes arrange sliding points or rocking points, to adjust the differences in the length of the steel contraction and expansion are important factors in all their calculations but a pendulum would change its rate of motion if it changed its length and this would interfere with its accuracy as a measure of time graham worked upon this problem too and attached a jar of mercury to the rod of his pendulum for a weight when the heat lengthened the rod, it also caused the mercury to rise, just as in a thermometer, and this left the working length the same. Such mercury-weighted pendulums are not uncommon to this day, but the more familiar gridiron came from the brain of John Harrison, who in 1726 fixed the alternate rods in such a way that the expanding brass rods raised the weight as much as the expanding steel rods lowered it. Thus they neutralized each other. The clock as we know it was now virtually complete. There were structural refinements, but no more radical improvements to be made. In tracing its development from the 14th to the 18th century, we note one curious likeness to the ancient history of recorded time. In this case, as before in Babylon, THE FIRST PEOPLE CONCERNED WITH THE SCIENCE WERE THE PRIESTS, AND AFTER THEM THE ASTRONOMERS, BUT WE NOTE A STILL MORE IMPORTANT DIFFERENCE. AS THE MEDIEVAL PASSED INTO THE MODERN, THE PRACTICE OF HOROLOGY PASSED MORE AND MORE OUT OF THE HANDS OF SCIENTISTS, INTO THE KEEPING OF COMMERCIAL WORKMEN. THE CUSTODIAN OF TIME WAS AT FIRST A PRIEST, AND FINALLY A MANUFACTURER and this change was attended by a vast increase in the general use of timepieces, and the correspondingly greater influence of time upon society and men's way of living. The Middle Ages made clocks and watches, and clocks and watches make the age in which we live. End of Chapter 7